If you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and open up to Acts chapter 15. We're going to be in chapter 15, verses 36 through chapter 16, verse 40. So we've got a lot of ground to cover today, but it's all right. It's all right. Well, I'll, get out, I'll get you out of here um, before tomorrow. Um, <laughs> so there's this one thing about the Christian life that we often either overlook, we take for granted, or we forget about. And, and that thing is that, that God is with us. That, that God is with us, he is in us, he is around us, he is, he is always with us. His power and his presence are always available right, to those who he calls his own. He guides us, he directs us, but we need to be in tune with him. We need to be submitted to his guidance and sensitive to, to his spirit so that we can know how God is moving in our lives. If we get too busy, we get too bogged down, we don't listen to the Spirit, we're just going to be flopping around, right? We're just going to be kind of floating around. And when we see Him work in our lives, that's just one way that we know that God is at work. That God is using His power through us and over us. Now God demonstrates His power in different ways, in a multitude of ways. Sometimes his power is displayed in the miraculous. Sometimes it's displayed in the stupendous ways. But other times it's just simple. It's just a softening of a hard heart. And today as we go through this section of scripture and Acts, we're going to see God's work, God's power on display in the town called Philippi. So as we get ready to enter into that time, let's go to the Lord with a word of prayer. Father God, again, we ask that as we dive into your scriptures, Lord, that you would illuminate them for us. That the Holy Spirit would touch our hearts, our minds, our souls. That he would empower us to understand what your word is saying to us. How you are communicating to us. How we can see your power on display. Not just in Philippi, Lord, but in our daily lives. I pray, God, that, that we would just sit and think and, and understand what it is you're trying to communicate. Because above all else, that's what it's all about. Lord, move me aside and let the power of the Holy Spirit speak through me. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So Paul and his team, they're in tune with the Spirit. We've seen them do miraculous things on their first missionary journey. And even though they're in tune with the Spirit, even though they're letting God lead, that doesn't mean that things are always going to be easy. That doesn't mean that things aren't going to get messy. What we're going to talk about today is the beginning of Paul's second missionary journey. So he already came back, he got back to home base in Antioch, and he's getting ready to head out again to preach the gospel to new places. And that's what we're going to see today. So in Acts chapter 15, verse 36 through 41, we're going to see a rocky road. After some days, Paul, and Barnab- Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord, and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with him John called Mark. But Paul thought it best not to take with them the one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia, and had not gone with them to work. And there arose a sharp disagreement, so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him, and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, 
having been committed by, commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. He went through Syria and Sicilia, strengthening the churches. So, what do we see here? Paul and Barnabas have a disagreement. They want to go and they want to minister to the churches they've been to before, but they have a disagreement. Remember back in Acts 13, verse 13, what we see is that John Mark departed their missionary journey. He left. Well, that past hurt is going to come back to bite again. And it's going to inflict some more damage. We don't know why Mark left the original journey. We don't know why. Maybe he was homesick. Maybe he was actually sick. Maybe he was resentful of Paul's overtaking the leadership. Maybe he was kind of timid or tepid about the Gentiles coming to worship the Lord. We don't know why he left, but the fact is he, was, he left, and Paul was upset. Paul was hurt. He felt abandoned, he felt deserted, and he thought, John Mark doesn't need to be a part of this because I don't want that type of thing to happen again. However, Barnabas was like, no, this is my cousin, man. Mark's my cousin, let's bring him along with us. Let's bring him along with us, and, and we'll preach the gospel again. So these godly men... They had a sharp disagreement. They did not agree. They did not see eye to eye. I love this about the scriptures. I love it that it doesn't gloss over issues, that it doesn't hide behind a facade of of everything's perfect, all things are well. Too often we hide behind that kind of facade. right? We're not real. We're not authentic with each other. But the Bible doesn't just treat those and gloss over them. No, he shows us right here, Luke does, that there was a division That even the people who are devoted to Christ are still people. They're still people. They still have their own hang-ups. They have their own baggage. And we don't need to hide it from one another. In fact, we need to help each other. We need to encourage each other. And sometimes, in rare occasions, we do need to separate from each other so that the kingdom of God can move forward. And it should be comforting for us to know and for us to see that even in our disagreements, even in the separation of Paul and Barnabas, God is still at work. God still uses this issue. Now, instead of one missionary journey, there's going to be two. There's going to be two missionary parties. They're going to go two separate directions, but God is still going to use both of them. Now, all the churches that have been preached to before will be reached, and new ones are going to be planted. God doesn't let a little hiccup in our relationships stop his progress. Because he is all about his mission. Now, when it comes to conflict, there are two types of people in the world. Well, two extreme type of people, I guess, on the either extreme. You've got the extreme, they're always looking for conflict. They're, they're searching it out, finding out how I can poke that bear, how I can start an argument. Then on the other side, you've got those people who want to avoid conflict altogether. You've got those two extremes. If You're one who wants to seek out conflict. People don't want to be around you because you're just not fun to be around. If you're that person who wants to avoid conflict, people may want to be around you, but what's going to happen is you're going to build up resentment because people aren't listening to you. People aren't taking you seriously. So we can't seek it out and we can't avoid it. So there has to be a healthy balance where we can have a disagreement and we can go our separate ways but we can still stay in relationship with that brother or sister. Remember that Paul on his deathbed was telling Timothy how great Mark was and how he was a blessing to his ministry, even after this disagreement. So we don't seek out conflict, 
and we don't avoid it either. Because when we do ministry together, when we live our lives together, when we get to know one another, I tell you what, conflict is inevitable. You're not going to like something I say. I'm not going to like something you say. But rather than get mad or angry, let's talk about it. Let's work it out. We're going to disagree. Families disagree. And guess what? We're in the ultimate family, the family of God. And I, get, I guarantee you we're going to disagree. We're going to argue because we're flawed, because we're human, because at times we can be selfish, and at times we can be blinded by our own desires. But even in our blinded selfishness, God can still work. God will still work because he's God. And he's got a mission, and that's to reach people for himself. I also want you to notice that in this passage, Luke doesn't pass blame. He doesn't say Paul is wrong. He doesn't say Barnabas is wrong. He just tells you about the situation. Because it's not about who's right and who's wrong. It's about the mission of God. The message of God reaching the people so that they can be drawn to him. So Paul and Barnabas, they split up. Barnabas travels down to Cyprus. Paul travels to help out the churches that he had planted. I want you to see something else here that's really cool. Paul loves the church. He loves God's people. He wants to be around God's people. He has a great devotion to God's people. He seeks out every opportunity he can to be with and encourage and strengthen God's people. Too often, I hear, and I'm sure some of you have heard, that they don't like church, or that they don't need church to worship God. Or they can love God, but they they don't like organized religion. Or that they can worship God in nature. They don't need to come to church. Or when their lives get too busy, church is the first thing that gets scrapped. Basically, what these people are saying, they don't want to prioritize God's people. Prioritize being with God's people. Because here's the thing. The church isn't this building. The church is us. Those of us who belong to Jesus, we are the church. This building could be gone tomorrow and we're still the church. We could be meeting in my home, and we're still the church. It doesn't matter where we meet, it's that we meet and that we're together. That's who the church is. And if you don't love being with God's people, if you don't love worshiping with God's people, then either you aren't trying to get to know them as much as you can, you have your own biases towards them, you're not wanting to spend the time and the energy to get to know them, Or, you don't love God like you think you do. Because here's the reality. God loves his people. God loves his church. And if you love God, and you belong to God, then you should love the same things that God loves. And that doesn't mean that church isn't going to be messy. That doesn't mean that we're not going to get in disagreements. As we've already seen, it's going to happen. But we work through them, and we still love one another. We cherish one another. It'll be messy, and it'll be difficult, but it will be worth it. It'll be worth it. So if you've been coming to our church for a while, you've been coming and enjoying fellowship with us, and you're just observing, you're just kind of being passive, I want to ask you to demonstrate your love for God and for his people by getting involved, by participating in the life of the church. Become a member. Don't just play a part, right? Get your hands dirty. Let's participate with one another. Let's serve one another. Let's be for one another because this is the most important hour of the week is when we get together and we worship God together.
We should love gathering together. We should love singing together. We should love learning together. We should love eating together. We should love just simply being together. The relationships that we build in the body of Christ should be the most important, the deepest, and the most uplifting relationships we have in our lives. Because we grow stronger together. We grow stronger when we grow together. So as you know, we can't do ministry alone. We can't do it alone. We have to be together. And I implore you to, implore you to make gathering with God's people a priority. I also, also ask that to be involved, to serve in whatever capacity that you're able to serve in. If you have a gift, which you do if you belong to Jesus, then you should be using that gift to glorify, edify him through service to the church. And we see that Barnabas, he, he's going to glorify and edify God on his own missionary journey. Paul's going on here, so Paul is going to need somebody to go with him. He didn't want to do this journey alone. So he chooses Silas. We learned about Silas last week. If you want to read it back up on him, you can. They're going to go minister to God's people. But Paul's ministry gang, the coolest gang, isn't done growing. So let's take a look at verses 1 through 5 in chapter 16. It says this, Paul came also to Derbe and Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, so he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they knew that his father was Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them the observance and decisions that had been reached by the apostles and the elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in, daily, in numbers daily. So he's on the journey. He gets to Derby, He gets to Lystra, and they pick up this guy named Timothy, this hitchhiker. No, he wasn't a hitchhiker. But, but here's what we know about Timothy. We know that Paul adores him. Paul loves Timothy as his own son. He even says so in 1 Corinthians 4.17 and 1 Timothy 1.2. That Timothy is like his own child, his own son in the faith. Timothy is also listed in six of Paul's other letters as a co-sender. So Timothy, Timothy is involved in the ministry. He's mentored by Paul. And we get a couple of, of descriptors about Timothy in these short verses. First, we see in verse 2 that he is well spoken of of other believers. Now, there's a 20-mile radius between Derby and Lystra, or Lystra and Iconium, and everybody knew Timothy, and everybody loved Timothy. Even outside of his own t- hometown, people thought highly of Timothy, and he was a young man, but he had an impact on people everywhere that he went. He had an impact on people. His love and his devotion to Jesus were written on the actions and on his character and the way he lived. That, that, and that should be the desire of our heart, is that everywhere we go, people see Jesus. People experience our love and devotion to Jesus so that people go, oh man, I really love that you came in here because you shine, you radiate, you are showing the love of Jesus. That when they hear our names, that our actions and our character bring up some joy in their minds because they know that we follow Jesus and we love Jesus and we're kind, and we're compassionate, and we demonstrate that love to them. We also see that Timothy is born to a Jewish woman, 
but his father was Greek. Now, the way that this is written, it can either be that his father is not just not a believer or that his father is dead. All right, it can go either way. But the important thing is that in Jewish culture, if a Jewish woman marries a Jewish man and they have a baby, that baby is considered illegitimate. But it's also tucked into the fold of Jewish. So he is seen as a Jewish baby. His father doesn't matter in the picture. His, his Jewish lineage comes through his mother. So Timothy would have been considered Jewish by everybody around. Yet he was devoted to Jesus because of the teachings of his grandmother and the teachings of his mother. You can read about those in Timothy. But Paul does something that may confuse us a little bit here. He, he circumcised Timothy. Not only does this confuse us, but can you imagine the conversation that he has to have with Timothy? Hey, Timothy, I want you to come and join me in the ministry. Man, that sounds like fun. Let's go, Paul. Yeah, it may be fun, but, but there's going to be some stonings, maybe a few imprisonments. We're going to get some beatings. It's for the gospel, right? Absolutely. It's for Jesus. Okay, then let's get going. All right, hold on, Timothy. Before we leave, <laughs> there's one last thing. We've got to go get you circumcised. Okay, Paul. So you may be thinking, Josh, you spent 40 minutes last week. You spent 40 minutes telling us last week that Gentiles don't have to be circumcised. And I say, oh, yeah, I did. And you were listening. Thank you. You are paying attention. You heard me, right? Gentiles don't have to partake in circumcision to believe in Jesus. But Timothy wasn't a Gentile. Timothy was Jewish. So Timothy had to, so that he didn't cause any stumbling blocks with the Jews that they came and took encounter with in different cities. So it wasn't about salvation. It was about not creating any extra stumbling blocks. Because if Timothy would have gone into a synagogue, well, he couldn't have gone into a synagogue, but if he came in contact with Jewish people, they would have said, this is an apostate Jew. He doesn't belong. He's a leper. We should shun him because he's not circumcised. So Paul looks forward and he says, all right, so how are we going to be able to do ministry better? Well, the way that we do ministry better is, Timothy, you've got to go get circumcised. Paul writes in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, he writes these words. He says, I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I do it for the sake, I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. Why do we do things that may be uncomfortable? Why do we do things we may not want to do so that some can know the gospel, so that some can hear the gospel, so that some can love Jesus? So Timothy is circumcised, not for salvation, but for the sake of preaching the gospel. A little pain and a little discomfort is worth the price to see people come to know their living Savior. So Paul and Timothy and Silas, they continue on their journey. In fact, they get to the towns that they had preached the gospel at before, and they relay to them the decision that was made in Acts chapter 15, that Gentiles don't have to obey the law, that they don't have to be circumcised to be part of the family. And what happens when they tell them that decision? There's rejoicing. There's rejoicing. People are happy that they aren't having to be weighed down by the law, that they are now in a relationship with other believers who were Jewish first. 
that they no longer are considered outsiders, but they know they're insiders in the family of God. And not only that, but because of this decision, because of this declaration, many more were added to their number. Many more people increased in their numbers daily. They became followers of Jesus daily. And that's exciting. That we don't need those requirements. All we need is Jesus. All we need is Jesus to be part of his family. So Paul, Silas, and Timothy are now going to continue on their mission. But they are going to be supernaturally guided. Let's read in Acts chapter 16, verses 6 through 10. And they went through a region of Phygeria and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Myasia, they attempted to go into Bithynia. But the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Myasia, they went down to Trous. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So they're back on the road again. The group was on their way, and they had a destination in mind. Let's go to Asia. They were on the road, and three times they were stopped. Well, twice they were stopped. Three times they were guided. They wanted to go north, and the Holy Spirit said, nope, don't go that way. They wanted to go south, and the Spirit of Jesus said, nope, don't go that way. Then Paul laid his head down and had a vision. Go to Macedonia. Preach the gospel to Macedonia. We don't know the details of how they were guided or how they were moved away from ministering in Asia. Luke doesn't tell us, but we see some fascinating things happen in these verses. We see the Trinity in triunity accomplishing the mission. Right? In verse 6, we see the Holy Spirit said no. In verse 7, we see that the Spirit of Jesus said no. And in verse 10, we read that God gave him a vision. Go to Macedonia. The triune God of the Scriptures is always working together to accomplish the same mission. They're always in unity. And it's texts like this where we get our doctrine of the Trinity. That the Trinity is important. It's an essential doctrine for Christians. We see that the Godhead is working toward moving the mission where he wants it to go. He's moving it where he wants it to go. But knowing this, we have to also recognize that when God guides us, it won't always be in a vision. It won't always be written on the walls. It won't always be as clear as day. I heard a preacher put it this way. He said, God works through both closed doors and open doors. He works in our circumstances and our rationality, and he works in our relationships and our conversations. God works in all these ways. It's not always going to be supernatural. It just happened to be in this, in this instance. Sometimes we have to look at a situation and we have to observe the reality. Is this something that I can do to glorify God? We have to use our minds to think about it logically. Can I afford to do this? Right? We can't lean only on our feelings. We have to also balance them with thought and reason. And this is where Christian education comes into play, where we have to think about. We have to be educated about things. Here's what happens on Paul's missionary journey. The gospel is about to be preached for the first time on European soil. We can't overlook the importance of this because Europe was the center of Christianity for a very long time. And it sent out many missionaries many of them coming right here to America 
to preach the gospel. Now, there were some problems with some of those missionaries, but the truth is the gospel was being preached. The gospel was about to be proclaimed to the end of the earth. God was doing what he set out to do in verse 1, 8 of of Acts. People are going to hear the good news of the gospel. They're going to see the power of God on display. And so what we're going to do is, in, in just a minute, we're going to look at three different little vignettes of God's power in Europe. We will see his salvation open up the heart of this lady, Lydia. We're going to see his power over evil when he releases a demonic or a girl who's possessed. And we will see his deliverance power as well. And all of this power will be on full display. Verse 16, or verse 11, in Acts chapter 16, it says this, So the setting sail from Trous, we made a direct voyage to Samaras, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is the leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in the, sit- in the city some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside, to the gate, or outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. Who had heard one of one who had heard us, this woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. After she was baptized in her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So the first movement of power on display, we see that God opened Lydia's heart. On their journey to Philippi, they get there, and this city is Roman to its core. What one commentator called it, the Rome away from Rome, right? It's a little Rome, and there wasn't a a Jewish um, quorum there or a Jewish population there because we read that there's no synagogue in Philippi. And according to, to Jewish customs and laws, if there's at least 10 Jewish men in a city, there has to be a synagogue. So we see that there's not even 10 Jewish men in the city, okay? So we see that, that there are worshipers of God who are down by the river. And on the Sabbath, they gather together to worship, to pray. And, and Paul comes and, and he, they highlight this one woman, Lydia. And she's a businesswoman from Thyatira. We read that she's a seller of purple goods. Well, what does this mean to us? It means that she's got money. She's wealthy. She's, she's loaded, as some people would say. Purple was the color of royalty. So when she would sell her stuff, she was selling them to kings so she could sell them at a good price. This means that she was also a really good businesswoman. She was, she was able to move from Thyatira to Philippi to propagate her business. She was a really good businesswoman. And unfortunately, in our circle, sometimes people believe that you can't be Christian if you have money, that we have to live in poverty as Christians. Or even if they, think that you, they don't think that you have to live in poverty, they think that you can't be wealthy. Through God's divine providence, some people are wealthy, some people aren't. That's just the way it is. Wealth is not a bad thing. Being wealthy is not a bad word. Being wealthy is a blessing if you use it correctly, if you use it to glorify and magnify God. Here is Lydia, worshiping God. She's, she's committed to a godly life. She's committed it committed it? She's committed to contributing to the mission of God. We need wealthy people in our church. 
We need people to con- wealthy people to contribute to the mission of God so that the work can get done. These lights don't pay for themselves. This nice air-conditioned room doesn't pay for itself. So wealth isn't the problem. Being wealthy is not the problem. The problem occurs when wealth or money becomes our focus, when it is the ultimate. God wants us to worship him in generosity. So we take our minds off of the wealth and we focus on being generous, being generous with what God has given you. If you are wealthy, be generous. If you are less, wealth, less than wealthy, be generous. Be generous with what God has given you. God wants us to recognize that whatever we have isn't ours to begin with. It all belongs to him. So what happens with Lydia is God captivates her heart. He draws her to himself. He, after his power is, opens up her heart to receive the message of Jesus, she ge- demonstrates both generosity and hospitality. And she invites these stinky, roaming missionaries to come stay at her house. Probably a really nice house. Come stay with me. In fact, Paul, when he writes the letter to Philippians, one of the main reasons that he writes this letter is to thank them for contributing to his missions. You can read about it in Philippians 4, 15 through 18. And it is likely that Lydia was a big contributor to Paul. That she was the one who gave to Paul so that he could preach the gospel. One of the ways that we can tell where our alliances are is if we look at our checkbook or, for most of us, our digital online banking statement. If we look at that, where's our money going? Who is it going to? And I'll tell you that I can see some of you getting a little bit uncomfortable because Josh is talking about money. Let me just tell you, if you realize it's not yours to begin with, it's a lot easier to let go of, okay? I'm not saying that you have to sell everything. Right? I'm not saying that you have to go give it all, but just recognize that God does want us to be generous with what he has given us. And the question really isn't, how much money do I give? The question is, do I really trust God? Do I really trust him? Do I really, really trust him? Because we trust him with our salvation. We trust him to work out things in our lives. But do we trust him when it comes to money? Do we trust him when it comes to the things that are a little more difficult to give up? And when God opens our hearts, he changes our affections. So if we ask him to, he's going to change our desires. He's going to change and give us a generous life. That's what he did with Lydia. That's what he can do for us. That's what he can do for you. He changes us. He opens our heart to the things that are his. Generosity, love, devotion. Those are the things that he opens our hearts to. Not only do we see God's power on display when he opened Lydia's heart, but in the next section we're going to see God's power over evil. Verse 16 through 24 we read, As, they were, as we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out of her that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, 
They said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them and the magistrates tore the garments off of them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into the prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet into the stocks. So here we see God's power over evil. We read about a girl in bondage to an evil spirit. She is possessed by an evil spirit. We read about this spiritual realm, and sometimes we don't take the spiritual realm seriously. And the reality is I would love to spend time talking about the spiritual realm. We just don't have enough time, so that may be something that is in the future. But this girl was able to see things like the future. She was able to see things that were hidden from our normal eyes, that angels are real and demons are real. And these things can impact our daily lives. Evil is real. Evil is the absence of good. We have to realize that this is happening, that this girl was possessed by an evil and demonic spirit, that demons were in her and they even recognized that God was the God most high. God is the one in control. God is the one that has power. But this girl, she was enslaved, not just by an evil spirit, but she was also enslaved by her owners. She was seen as a means of financial gain. They were using her for their own profit. She was simply a pawn for both the demon and for her owners. And Christ saved her and broke her free from that. And after she followed Paul around, annoying him for many days, he rebuked her. Through the power of Jesus, she was liberated. She was saved. She was set free from the bondage. She was released from the evil that was inside of her, and her mystical powers were no longer gone, or no longer there. And it enraged her masters. Jesus had overcome the power of evil. He had did it during his ministry on earth. He did it when he overcome the grave. And he continues to do it through the ministry of his people. These, these girls' owners were furious. They had lost their way of gaining income. Their idol was shattered. So they dragged Paul and Silas and the rulers to the town, and they accused them of preaching unlawfully in the town. They said, these guys don't need to be doing this. They're proselytizing. They're, they're trying to convert people to their religion. They're disrupting the town. They're disrupting the city. They're causing a disturbance. So the magistrates, they take them, they beat them, and they throw them in prison. And the text tells us that they put them down into the inner prison. And when they say that they took them down to the inner prison, I want you to think dungeon, like the dark, the heart of darkness. They put them in the heart of the prison, and they were shackled, both their feet and their hands. But God isn't finished displaying his power in Philippi. Verse 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, Do not harm yourselves, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? 
And they said, Believe in Jesus, in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, and you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to them and to all who were in his house. And they took them in that same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and his family. Then he brought them into the, up into the house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. But when it was day, the magistrates sent, sent the police, saying, Let those men go. And the jailer reported the, these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent you to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned, Men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison, and do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these things to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. What do we see here? We see God's power on display with the broken chains. There's a lot going on in these verses, but the first thing I want you to see is their reaction to being in prison. Paul and Silas's reaction to being in prison, when they're thrown in there, what do they do? They start praying. They start singing. Not only that, but the other prisoners are watching them. They're listening to them as they sing and they pray. Regardless of their circumstances, Paul and Silas find their solace in the hand of the mighty God. If you are suffering for the sake of Christ, it is never improper to praise him. People watch you. They see you. And if you claim to be a Christian, they want to see the way that you react when things get hard, when things don't go the way that they're planned, when things aren't all hunky-dory. They see you. They hear you. And your response will influence some of them. Your response will influence them. And some of them who don't know Christ will start investigating, what is this that we see inside this person? What is this that we see? And I'm not saying that the pain isn't real. I'm not saying that it's not difficult. I am saying that the way you respond to the pain and the way that you respond to the difficulty is a witness to others. I am saying that the way that you choose whether to worship God or to blame God will influence others because they are watching you. It's encouraging and convicting when I see someone going through a difficult time and yet they're still praising God. That they're going through something really hard and they're still praising God. Because to be honest with you, sometimes my praise is short. I stub my tongue and I'm really mad. Right? Sometimes my praise is short. And I'm sure some of you, if you were honest, you would say that too. But if we're focused on God, if we're focused on Christ, then our praise can endure. But these men, Paul and Silas, they're in chains. And they're in chains because they love Jesus. Because they're preaching Jesus and they're singing and they're praising because their love is overflowing from their heart. Not even knowing what tomorrow holds. Not even knowing what tomorrow holds. They're still singing and praying because they trust and believe. And then suddenly, an earthquake shakes the doors. Rattles the chains. Allows them to be freed. But no one left. The jailer comes. And he thought for sure that everyone had escaped. And the penalty for having being a a jailer and somebody escaping your prison, the penalty for that was death. So he was ready just to take himself out instead of allow the government to do it. But Paul sees him and says, no, don't do that. We're still here. 
The jailer then asks the most important question that any one of us can ask. Can ask. What does he ask? What does it mean to be saved? How can I be saved? What must I do to be saved? Because he had knew, known they were in jail for preaching the gospel. He had heard them sing. He had heard them pray. And he had witnessed the power of God on full display during the earthquake with the doors open and the chains and shackles come free. What must I do to be saved? What do they say? Repent. Turn around. Turn around from your sin and trust Jesus. And they preach the whole gospel to the family. And then in an act of service, because of his changed heart, what did he do? He washed the wounds of those who he had put in prison. He had washed the wounds of Paul. And he had washed the wounds of silence. He demonstrated his change of heart. And then he was baptized. Now, if you're paying attention during this time, we see both Lydia and the jailer. There, there's some interesting language that's being used. These are what people refer to as the household belief passages, where a, a household believes. And this has caused some issue because it, it, it seems that it may allow for infant baptism or whole house baptism. Right? So these are some of the texts that people go to, that the whole family was baptized. And if we look at it, we have to do some biblical theology, just real quick. Let's just not just isolate these passages. We have to look at these passages in the entirety of the book of Acts and in the entirety of the Bible. And what we see is that through the book of Acts and in the rest of the New Testament, baptism is always followed by belief. Belief first and then baptism. So what we can infer from this passage is that through the confession of Jesus as Lord from these household members, then they were baptized. They weren't baptized on the basis of Lydia's belief. They weren't baptized on the basis of the jailer's belief, but they were baptized on their individual belief. Again, you're not saved by what your grandma did. You're not saved by how your mama and daddy did. You're saved by your own individual faith in Jesus Christ. When we place our faith in Christ, that's when we are saved. So the next morning, the magistrates decide to let Paul and Silas go because they weren't breaking the law. They weren't doing anything else. But Paul gets mad. He's mad and he says, no, we weren't given a fair trial. Let's go through this. You need to come apologize to us. We are innocent. And so Paul also lets them know that we're Roman citizens. And because he's a Roman citizen, he's got some rights that were violated. Now, why didn't Paul tell people about his Roman citizenship when he was beaten and before he was thrown in jail? Well, I think that the reason why he didn't tell them is because he wanted to have a trump card over them. He wanted to say, hey, you guys threw me in jail. Y'all leave this new church alone. Y'all leave them alone. Here's, you did what was wrong, and if I report you to the government, you're going to lose your status as a Roman uh, colony. So you don't want to do that, so you guys stay in line. So we kind of had a, a plan from the beginning. But what does this all mean for us today? What does this mean for us today? We need to understand that God is still in control, regardless of the mess we see outside. Regardless of when we look at the world, God is still in control. God is still in power. He doesn't leave his people. He is always with us. He doesn't forsake us. That in every circumstance, event, and trouble we face, God is with us. He's with us. We can trust him. We also need to recognize that God is still at work. That God is still at work in this community. God is still at work in our church. God is still at work in this country. God is still at work in the world because he's drawing people to himself. God never stops until he's done. And he ain't done yet. He's still doing it. If you're here today and you, you haven't felt the power and the presence of God in your life, 
You haven't seen the hand of God transform you from being in bondage to sin, from being in bondage to death. I pray that you would call out to him today. I pray that you would recognize your need for a Savior, that you are sinful, that you need a Savior, that you can be reconciled to the Holy God, and that he provided that way for you through Jesus' death, his burial, and his resurrection. If you are a Christ follower today, I pray that you will continue to trust him regardless of your life circumstances, regardless of what's going on. I pray that you would continue to do the work that he has set before you, that you will praise him and you will endure to the end, that you will communicate the good news of the gospel to the world that is perishing, that you will tell others about the hope you have in Christ. If there are people around you that don't know the goodness of God, that you would proclaim it to them. Because they need to hear it. And you may be the one that God has put there to tell them. Are you going to trust and obey God today? Whether you're putting your trust in Him or you're obeying Him through the proclamation of the gospel, how are you going to trust and obey Him? I'm going to pray for just a minute and then we're going to serve the Lord's Supper. If I have my ushers, go ahead and come down. Father God, we're so grateful for the grace that we have received.